welcome to Beer Stories for Private Equity. Join us for our weekly happy hour, tapping into 27 years of PE experience, one pint at a time. Beer Stories for Private Equity is powered by Monogram Group. On today's show, we're excited to be joined by Aaron Clark from Stevens Group in Little Rock, Arkansas. And for Monogram Group, here's your host, Scott Markman. Please fasten your seatbelts. Welcome to episode four of Beer Stories for Private Equity. I'm Scott Markman, your host. And today we're joined by Aaron Clark from Stevens Group in Little Rock, Arkansas. Welcome to the podcast, Aaron. Yeah, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm number four, the cleanup batter, I guess. <laughs> I love that. Well, since I'm a diehard Baltimore Orioles fan and the next chapter of my life starts on Saturday. That's a great metaphor. So Brooks Robinson uh, is from here in Little Rock and just, just passed okay. away. Great, great Oriole. Okay. So in the interest of full disclosure, he is the only sports hero I've had my entire life. Awesome. I have um, I have a bobblehead in my office. I've got um, a bat signed by him. And I'm not really a memorabilia guy at all. It's only him. And I have three things. But when you know we did our work in Little Rock uh, earlier this year, um, I was with uh, my partner Chip Walsh, and I made note of him over beers downtown that I couldn't believe I was in Brooks' hometown. Yeah, so the the place he supposedly played played a lot of baseball growing up is uh, where I played high school baseball. So uh, neat, neat Little Rock connection there. I mean, two degrees of separation. It's awesome. That's right. Um, also, I have to mention that um, I screwed up earlier today and I forgot to bring the beer from my house. And so we are going to be sharing a La Cologne mocha <laughs> latte. Why? Because it looks like beer um, and it's the next best thing. And so um, hopefully you have a beer um, and I apologize in advance for not sharing. Yeah. Well, cheers. <laughs> All right. um, so let's talk a little bit. Um, you joined Stevens Group back in 2006. And you've seen the evolution of this incredible firm, family office, um, in that time. What would you say are the one or two biggest ways in which the firm has evolved in that time frame? Well, there's been a lot of evolution over that time. I mean, the thing that jumps out to me is, um, I think in 2006, there were initially six people in the private equity kind of group. Uh, there were other people in the firm wonderful assistants and others that we've had inside the firm all that time. But we're now over 20 people in the private equity effort. And so when I think about our evolution, it's really about, um, there's some things we've done strategically um, and some ways we've tried to transform and evolve the thesis of the firm. But um, the people are really what come to mind. It's just a different organization and its size and each of those individuals, we're lucky to have just so many talented people that have put their fingerprint on the organization and and caused us to slightly nudge one direction or the other. Um, but that that's really the thing. Thinking back to 2006 and and and, and present, that uh, has changed the most. It's just a different organization, the size of people, and the type of people we have around. We're lucky to have a lot of good folks. So I want to probe a little bit into two facets of um, your organization. One of which is that it's a family office sort of a little bit combined or meshed together with a private equity firm in terms of skills and experience and PLA sophistication, but you're a family office. 
So for our listeners that maybe work in mainstream traditional private equity firms, how would you characterize the difference in culture and processes and priorities in a family office versus a firm that's got a separate fund and you know it's beholden to investors? Well, a couple of things I'd point out, some of which may be unique to us versus other family offices. Um, we are not in the fundraising business, and uh, the fundraising business is, is a good business. There's a lot of good people and good firms that have that business model. That's not our business model, and most family offices don't have that business model. And so there's a certain set of kind of rules of the road and incentives that come with raising money, you know, making certain promises or, you know, stating a thesis that you're raising that money around and uh, going and doing things that are consistent with that and returning the capital ultimately. Um, we, we don't have that process here. We don't have LPs. We have Stevens family. And so, uh, our incentive systems are a bit different because of that. I, I think that's probably true of a lot of family offices. What's, what's unique to Stevens is that, um, this has been the family business. And so there, there are increasingly a number of high net worth families that are wanting to do more direct investing. Um, often the story there is that they've had a single asset that's been particularly good to them and they've taken that wealth and they're now looking to diversify it and direct investing as part of the diversification strategy. Uh, Stevens is unique because it started with a small pile of capital many, many years ago and really grew that capital through through the investing business. And so it's it's we say it's the family business. Family business is investing. So uh, that's unique to us. And, and you know, uh, the other thing that comes with that is um, the the reputation of uh, being good partners, of doing things the right way, uh, really following the golden rule, for lack of a better word, is really important to the family. And they can ensure that that's always first and, and doesn't come behind any other objective. And there are many other objectives for an investing business, as you might expect, risk management, return optimization, things like that. Those are all very important to us, but they're secondary to kind of making sure the the things that have led to such a great reputation stay intact. So in the in the work that we're currently doing for your firm mm-hmm. and the research that we did, we interviewed several people, I mean, you know, including, you know, your dad, that have worked side by side or in collaboration with the family for decades and decades. And there was a quote that I want you to just react to because I will never forget this quote as long as I live. And I've done probably 500 interviews in private equity. And and I forget who it was, but this gentleman said, I would play poker with these people over the phone. Yeah. <laughs> and I burst out laughing because it was it was said the most with the least in kind of a, you know, a kind of a homily sort of way. But but just expand upon that a little bit, because for somebody to say that, given the business you're in, to me was remarkable. Well, there's two things that come to mind as you say that. Uh, one is uh, that's a that's a fun quote, and uh, there are lots of those. So part of our culture has always been, you know, having fun. And there's even people that have taken notes on these interesting things that have been said. These these fun quotes over the years. But that one, I mean, it's true. It's true also. I think, um, look, it, 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 the bedrock of that to me is just treating people the way you want to be treated and um, and having a, 
culture where the founders of this organization made sure that that was priority priority number one and that the people that came behind them fought, continued to follow that. So um, I, it's one of those things you have to continue to live every day or try to, right? And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot to, lot to live up to. <laughs> so along, along these lines, I mean, certainly a big part of the story of the family office and the firm starts with, you know, with Senior and his uh, career, the people he surrounded himself with, the deals he did, and the culture, the legacy, and the values that were set in place that were then transferred to Witt Jr. And then, you know, the last 15 or 16 years across now 20-some people. So, so talk for a second about sort of the role of responsibility of individuals from the newest up to the most tenured to live those values and have that sort of color everything across enterprise. Again, I don't take that lately. I don't think you do either. Well, it's it, it really is. I mean, it's priority number one. And uh, as we've become a larger organization, eh, we don't manage that through some uh, strict top-down process necessarily. I think um, we, it, we hire people as well as we can to go through the same process everybody else does to try to hire good people. Uh, hopefully we're attracting a certain type of person that wants to be a part of this organization versus another type of organization. Um, and I think we're pretty good at, you know, culturally you, as a young person in this organization, you get a lot of direct contact with people from, from Whit Stevens himself to, to the senior members of the team. And that, that process of sitting around lunch table with people, traveling with people, uh, you know, doing fun stuff together with people, I think over over the long term helps both sides of that equation ensure that they're the right fit for the organization. You know, um, and ultimately, uh, I I think we're all of the belief that there are many many great people out there in this business, and so it's not like we've cultivated the few handfuls of good ones. There's many many, and uh, we're just. Hopefully we've got a really good crew here. I know we do, and that we can continue to, to attract those types of folks over time. So when you think about that culture, that sort of standards, those values that are really uh, imbued, infused into the individuals and the responsibilities to execute against the backdrop, can you think of a current or a recent uh, deal, a company that the, the office has owned, where you can say, you know, here is a situation where that culture and that set of values played out in decision-making, collaboration with management, whatever it turned out to be, that you can say, look, we think that X, Y, Z turned out well because of this. Yeah, well, it's easy to point to examples um, on on the front, of a, in a front end of a deal where um, I feel like we've been selected among other parties because of the cultural fit. Um, that's often the first taste of we we get in a, in a new relationship is um, candidly we we want people that are picking us as much as we're picking them and and, and that want a partner. You, some people may not realize this, but when you sell a business or sell part of a business, picking a partner isn't always part of the objective. Sometimes it's just you know I'm done with this and it's about the highest uh, value and and that's the end of it. But we, for the most part, want people in businesses that uh, at the margin care about who their partner is and, and feel alignment with our style. 
of investing. So we can point to examples where it's made a difference on the front end. I think over the life of an investment, um, you know, I can think of several examples of businesses that have been through tough times. And um, in my opinion, uh, the experience of the more seasoned folks around our organization that had been through those type of experiences and kept the long term in mind uh, really offered a steady hand and a lot of patience through those trying periods. And, uh, you know, in many cases, we just need to get through them and there, there are better days ahead. Um, I think on kind of the flip side of the same coin is we've had things go very well, better than expected, better than, better than planned. And uh, sometimes in those instances, being very patient, uh, it pays off too. Um, so there's certainly examples of that. Um, others example examples would be people that we've had success with in the past, circling back to us years later and, and re-engaging with us in a new role uh, because uh, they've They've had good experiences with us. Uh, I can point to a couple of current examples of people that I think could go work with anybody they want to. They have excellent reputations and track records and have done well with many other parties. Uh, but I think there's been a good fit between us and them. And so we're choosing to work with one another uh, because of that that cultural fit with one another. And that benefits the places where they get plugged in, the individual companies where they end up serving on a board or something like that. Also, want to expand this thought into the family and the family offices relationship to Arkansas and to Little Rock, because you know you're uh, very important to the local community and to the, you know, the civic and business uh, sort of fraternity within the, the 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 local region. So let's talk about that for a second, because again, um, the beautiful thing about your the family of is that you know they play kind of a somewhat of a quasi public role in lots of what goes on in Little Rock and Arkansas. And sort of how does that, again, play out and why is it important? Well, um, what's the best way to phrase that? I mean, this is where it was all born. And I think this is where the family members grew up. Uh, and so there's a dedication to this and this is where a lot of the business success has happened, uh, particularly in the early innings when a lot of the investing was here regionally versus now nationally and, and really across all of North America. Um, and so there's just, this is where the friendships exist. This is where kids have gone to school. And so there's just a dedication to uh, the state and a fondness for all elements of it. The people who live here, the friendships we have here, uh, and so I think each of us that are here in Arkansas, and, and look, I'm biased. I grew up here, so we feel uh, a real deep connection to the state. But but we also, I mean, we have a number of employees uh, that live outside the state now. We don't, we don't think we're necessarily confined to the state. Um, and our invest our portfolio companies sit all across the, the map. So, uh, but there will always be something special about uh, the roots in Arkansas, just because so much of the history and the foundation was was built here. On a, on a kind of more personal front, um, among the role and responsibility within your firm, you know, you you're a leader in several of the deals that are involved in tech and software and whatnot. And so, what is it about kind of leading the charge for the the office um, into those those sectors that you find interesting, enjoyable, and rewarding? 
It's a good question. Um, had, had you asked me earlier, early in my career to say, all right, you have to narrow yourself down to one industry, pick. Uh, I probably would not have picked anything related to te technology. I'm not a coder or technologist by nature. Um, but I do think maybe if, if I had something that I brought to that is I, I'm a pretty open-minded individual and I was open-minded as I got exposed to some technology businesses. What I mean by that is there's some people, especially investors that think that that is a, that investing in technology is difficult and, and, uh, not the same as, uh, more of the value investing elements you might see on a multiple of cash flow type of, um, uh, more typical investment. Um, but what really helped me build a lot of momentum in technology is when you bring an open mind and, and you look at some of these businesses uh, and the markets they operate in and you compare it, and I was in a unique position to be able to compare, you just see a lot of really favorable characteristics. I mean, from the quality of talent that could easily be attracted to these companies to the just the natural growth of the markets they're operating in versus markets where it may be more more about competitive market share gain. There's, these are growing markets where there's room room to grow without having to compete so hard. Uh, there are business models within the technology world that, that vary, but some of them are, are really elite business models, high margins, low capital intensity, kind of things that are classically good. And those things kind of just dawned on me as I started digging in and, and I really just built a lot of momentum around what I felt were the higher quality places to invest in that landscape. And, um, so, uh, you know, at some point you get to a point in your career where you do need to go narrower and deeper versus staying broad. And, and as I kind of got to that point in my career, that's where I had a lot of natural momentum. So um, from that point forward, really started doubling down on places where I was trying to learn and, and make additional investments and so on. So when you think about what you just said about sort of looking back on the last 10, 15 years and certain decisions you made or how your career has evolved, if you're going to have a beer with, um, you know, somebody at, uh, you know, Kellogg or UFC or, you know, some, some business school that's looking at getting into private equity, what are one or two pieces of advice that you can share with our listeners that you may share with a B-School, you know, grad that is looking to make a kind of a, a commitment to being in private equity and all that comes with it. Yeah, I, I think is I, I I talk to I think a lot of people speak to younger folks on a pretty regular basis. I talk to a number of people in undergrad every year, and then occasionally folks that are in business school programs. Um, you know, you're a little bit further along in your career coming out of business school, but one of the things I try to impart to, to younger folks is that, um, th those people in your peer group and, you know, if you're in, if you're in school, the people in your class or maybe one or two classes ahead of you that are doing interesting things, uh, are actually in pretty good positions to potentially help you along in your career. So making the effort to get to know them, to understand, Hey, how'd you get that great job? Or why did you become so interested in this? I think a lot of people think a little bit too far down the line about where they want to be when they're 50 and not enough about, you know, who are the people I have access to that would answer my phone call right now if I called and are willing to give me a helping hand and impart some wisdom. 
Um, and so, and I, I mean, that, that has been quite helpful to me in my career is the people that were one or two years ahead of me, uh, kind of enlightening me on what it takes to make the next step in your career versus the next five steps in your career. So that, that's something I always keep in mind. I think specific to the private equity world, one thing that I would tell somebody, particularly coming out of an MBA program is, um, there are a lot of things that are important to know about how to, how to transact, how to do a deal, how to do diligence well, how to identify a quality business versus a non-quality business, things like that. Um, and those are table stakes for being in the private equity business. But um, knowing how to really turn the knobs inside of a company and make a difference operationally, I'm not sure that isn't where a lot of... Uh, a lot of value will accrue to those that can do that and prove they know how to do that. Um, and so you, you of course see a lot of operationally focused, uh, private equity firms these days. That's not a new thing, but it just, if I were planning out my experience set early in my career, I'd be thinking about hmm, when, when and how might I get a dose of insight into that? Uh, you know, the actual, how do you build a sales force? How do you execute a marketing program? How do you uh, run a factory? Uh, th those things are pretty important. And if you if you have a lot of confidence in your ability to do those things, it opens up opportunity that wouldn't be there without that without that knowledge and confidence. Tell us a bit about your you know your family you know wife, kids, dog, house, backyard, that kind of stuff. Got all those things. Um, so. Uh, married to my wife and I started dating when we were in high school. So we've, we've, you know, been either dating or married probably over half our lives at this point. I think that's actually true. Um, we have four kids, two, two girls and two boys, all kind of between five and 12 at this point. So when we're not, when I'm not working, you know, something on that front's keeping us busy. We do have a dog. He's a hunting dog. Um, um, uh, he, you know, he kind of slowly moved to the back of the list as all these kids have showed up. Uh, but we, but he's, we're still glad to have him. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, that's, we, we stay busy, uh, just chasing the kids around on, on evenings and weekends when, when we're around. So the, the, the type of hunting that's very popular here is duck hunting, which you, you use a shotgun for. And so, uh, bird shooting accuracy would be, uh, something that would be great to be known for. But I don't know if I deserve that. All right. Last question. Let's imagine they make a movie about Steven's group and somebody is cast to play Wick Jr. and somebody is cast to play you. Who are the actors? Well, I'm sure Wit will listen to this. So the only <laughs> answer there, I, I can't imagine. Robert Redford, the, I'm sure. Robert Redford, but well, I digress. Or maybe Brad Pitt. May, maybe, <laughs> but I can't. Nobody else. I don't think would really fit uh, as I think about it. Not Matthew McConaughey? Then. Maybe McConaughey. He he might have a chance. Uh, yeah, he might have a shot. For myself, that's uh, I don't know. What do you think? To wrap up, an answer to the actor that I should play you, um, it's the, uh, the the kid who played Harry Potter. Daniel Radcliffe. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe. There you go. Okay. Uh, Daniel Radcliffe would play you. With no glasses, of course, but I, mean, I wish I had a really good Harry Potter line right now. I don't, my my daughter would. 
Well, I mean, maybe maybe you could grab a wand to like do a you know like one of the famous spells. I think I'm supposed to say I'm just a muggle though. So, uh... <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much. This was really enjoyable, and um, I think that there's lots of uh, nuggets and anecdotes that um, our listeners will really come on to and uh, enjoy. So, thank you again for your time today. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Really enjoyed it. And thanks for all the work you guys have done for us. We're super excited about it. And um, it's been awesome. From all of us at Monogram Group, thanks for tuning in to Beer Stories for Private Equity, Episode 4. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and you'll be notified as we release new episodes. Please check out the show notes in the description from today's episode. Our email is podcast at monogramgroup.com. Feel free to email us with any comments or questions, and we'll try to answer them in our next episode.